Okay, hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. We are getting to the tail end, the business end of the Miami Open. Uh, Jamie, nice of you to join. Good to be with you after uh, both of us took a week off. Yeah, welcome back from uh, vacation. I hope you are feeling refreshed as I am um, and ready to talk some tennis. I'm telling you, it's, it's as much about not checking your phone as like beaches and hammocks and blenders with mixed drinks these days. The screen but, time, uh, the screen time gets you. I know. Um, no, that's what, that's what vacation means now. It's not about location. It's just about what we're doing with these devices that are on us all the time. But anyway, um, we are, uh, I feel like we always need to timestamp these things during tournaments. You know, pe- people always say, oh, you should do a podcast during the French Open. And you say, great, but it's very hard to do because the minute people listen to it, uh, storylines and results have changed. So you and I are talking at about noon, um, no, what is it, two, 2 o'clock Eastern on uh, Thursday. I'm checking this as we speak, and I believe Tsitsipas has won the first set against uh, against Herkosh. So that's that's sort of where we are to keep you up to date. But it's it's Thursday. We are uh, essentially in, in the semifinal round. Thoughts on this? Uh, well, I'll, I'll lead the witness. Thoughts on this uh, very strange event? Yeah, so I mean, of course, we... We started with lots of, before the tournament even started, lots of withdrawals. We have no Serena, no one from the big three. So of course in Miami, that um, is is unlike what we're used to. Um, and then generally, you know, in the, in the past few days, I think the the first big headline is just the, the score line um, at the very least of the Osaka-Sakari match. Um, you know, of course, Osaka, ends that 23 match win streak, which goes all the way back to, you know, February of last year, she doesn't get a chance to get that number one ranking. So there's a lot um, on the line and she, that, that scoreline for me is just huge. And I don't know, I I wanted to get your thoughts on, on that result was the, for me, the, the, one of the most surprising of the tournament. Yeah. I I mean, I think that was one of the great storylines coming in. I mean, as you say, we, we didn't have Serena, which I mean, honestly, people had been talking about this for weeks. I'm not sure why that news broke quite when it did. Um, but we didn't have Sarita. We did not have Federer. We did not have Nadal. We didn't have Djokovic. We didn't have team. I mean, the, the withdrawals really piled up. And these these cutoff, I kept getting emails about the cutoff for the draw, which kept uh, changing. And a lot of lower ranked players uh, were very happy to get in the main draw of such a big event. Um, but I thought one of the great storylines was, was Naomi Osaka going to be able to keep this this win streak going, which strangely enough would, would have been coming up on a year, uh, COVID notwithstanding, um, you know, Naomi Osaka had really been the story in tennis and looked pretty good out of the gates. And then just a strange, strange loss to, uh, to a player you would not, I mean, you know, if you'd said Naomi Osaka was going to come out flat and play a match when she only won four games, you'd, you'd say, okay, well, maybe I could see that under the right circumstances. I'm not sure soccer in a six love set is what you would have predicted. Um, that was the same day, I believe, or the 24 hour window, which Naomi Osaka had said she wasn't going to play an event because of uh, anticipated homesickness, which and part of me says good for her. We, we love that she just does things her own way. And, and there is a real sort of blaze my own trail quality to her, but you know, you're, you're the leading light of the sport. It's a, it's a bit of a strange, uh, Bit of a strange explanation, I thought. Um, and then she just played a really hollow, vacant match. I mean, I, I had people on Twitter saying, is she tanking? 
Um, I don't think she was tanking, but this was a, a strange match on a surface she likes in a part of the world she likes. Right. Um, it was a, it was a weird result, but um, you know, I mean, I, I think there there is a glass half full aspect to this entire tournament. And I think this is a pretty good, I think this is pretty instructive for sort of the, the life after the big three plus Serena that we're all anticipating. And that is, there will be disappointments, but there will also be triumphs. And as long as they hold these events, there will be players that surge and players that assert themselves. And if Naomi Osaka goes out, we'll shift our focus to talking about the return of Andrescu, or we'll talk about you know, Seb Corda or, hey, Ash Barty, let's not forget, is still the number one player in the world. And she has made this decision to sort of re-enter the tennis fray and boy, she's looked pretty good. So I, I feel like there were a lot of strange results even before the withdrawals. You, you couple them together. This is not the draw sheet that uh, James Blake or Steve Ross or any of the organizers necessarily, if you gave them true serum, they would want to see on the, the final Thursday of this big multi-million dollar event. But there's storylines, there's good tennis, and uh, I think it, it's, it's a pretty good reminder that as, as often as we have upsets and inexplicable results and box office disappointments, there are always going to be storylines. For sure. I think the one thing on Osaka that I thought was interesting was, you know, after the match, she, she said something to the effect of like, last time I was in this chair, you know, I, I wasn't really thinking at all about the rankings, but then somebody asked me about that. And then she started to think about it a little bit more. So she said something about, you know, potentially putting pressure on herself. And I, I think that's interesting um, to hear from her in, in at this point in time, um, you know, I think we, we talk a lot about pressure and, and nerves when it comes to Serena and winning this, you know, this major and, and all of that. And I think with Osaka for her to say, someone might have planted something in my head that I couldn't get out of it. You know, for me, that's a really interesting thing as an athlete, you know, and then you couple that with how she looked and how she played on the court. Um, it makes you think maybe it was just this, like, nerves thing or this realization, like I'm going to, or I could potentially accomplish this, you know, this big thing and, you know, get back to this number one ranking. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to see how going forward, she'll handle the pressure because unfortunately those questions about rankings and her legacy and everything else, if she continues on this path are not going to stop. We are also uh, we are also nearing the, the two year anniversary. I mean, remember where she was at this point in 2019, where she had mm -hmm. won the U.S. Open and won the Australian Open, and then all of a sudden she really started to struggle and was very candid. It was sort of bracingly, wincingly candid about her struggles. And I think it's it's all part of the appeal. I mean, again, I, I'm all in on Naomi as as much as we are uh, trained not to root. I find her so admirable and I find her so interesting. And there's just I've never covered an athlete quite like her. I mean, there's, there's so much to like, admire, respect, be uh, amused by, but she doesn't, uh, she, she ain't the player you want at, uh, at the poker table. Um, she's right. very open when she's not feeling it. Yeah. And it, it seems like uh, we are hitting another one of these moments. And I, I think, I can't remember, I think it was Ben and Courtney. I mean, someone made a good point about Osaka, which is she, uh, you know, she's, she's conquered Asia. She's conquered the U S but look at her results. Uh, in Europe, and obviously a lot of that is is due to the surface, but she's she, she ain't a top five player in in Europe, and that's that's where we're headed for the next uh, three four months. So it's it's an interesting time, and I mean the the other player I was going to bring up, not 
dissimilarly was was Iga Schwantek, who, of course, had that wonderful end to to 2020. And, you know, she, she did not back up her major title in Australia, but she went down the hollow up. It was a well-played, hard-fought match. Schwantek had played some good tennis to get there, no problem. Um, you know, then the pretty pretty dicey results. She uh, she did not do well in, in Dubai, and she lost to, to Mugu. I'm pulling up the score here. 0-4. Then uh, you'll remember, you know, at, at some point she where, – where was this? No, Dubai, she lost to Krejcikova. Um, and then in Miami, you know, she, uh, she was beaten by Anna Kanyu. So it's, it's been a bit of a rough patch for her as well, as long as we're sort of talking about the WTA's ascending stars. I, I was thinking too, I mean, the other, the, men, the men's side too, you had these big storylines of, you know, Medvedev is now number two and seemed to be playing like it. And if he could win this big title, that would really cement his status. That was a, a very questionable effort. Uh, it, it was mm-hmm. an adventure to get to this point in the tournament, but then, Pretty, pretty questionable effort there at the end against RBA. Um, we were talking about you know, Kratsov now seated, the qualifier in Australia who's been playing lights out, won a title. Um, he was sort of really run out of town by Seb Korda. So you sort of had these storylines we were all following that seemed to fizzle. Osaka, Svantec, Medvedev, and, uh, and Kratsov. And, um, you know, other storylines will come up in, in their stead, but it's, it's, a, it's a sort of overall takeaway. It's, it's a really weird time for tennis right now. And I think, um, I mean, I was going to ask you sort of a, a larger question about all of this, which is how do we feel about this event being held? I mean, this is, this is the, now I think you would say the sixth, but at one point this was the fifth major. This is, you know, a huge Masters 1000 event that in, in most normal years, there's, you know, eight figures worth of prize money and, you know, 250, 300,000 fans. That ain't the case this year. Um, there are a handful of fans and they look like less than a handful on, on television and the prize money has really fallen off a cliff. I was just looking here. The winner this year gets $300,000, which is about a 75% fall off. Someone making the fourth round makes $40,000. I mean, $40,000 is, you know, you, you make more than that for losing in the first round of a major. So we have very few fans. We have very little atmosphere. We have very little prize money. Um, how do we feel about this event, Jamie? Are you uh, on, on balance? Are you, are you happy there's a 2021 Miami Open or should we have done what Indian Wells did and sit out a year? Yeah, I hear you. I think the the reduced prize money um, is, is one conversation to be had. But I think to your point, if we still had Osaka here and, you know, Medvedev is closer to establishing himself, you know, uh, amongst the, the big three at this time without their, you know, their presence here in Miami. And we still had some of these storylines that you mentioned. Maybe this tournament doesn't feel so flat at, at this point in time, you know, and maybe we have a different perspective on it. So I'm not going to go ahead and say, we should have never had this, you know, we should have skipped it. I, I think it's, um, I think it's fine. I think this is, you know, again, we, we talk about this post big three post Serena era and the, the show must go on, you know? And so, in, in going back to your, your point about Medvedev, you know, this, this was a great opportunity for him. I, I, I feel like these are the tournaments, um, you know, of course this is considered one of the, the sort of the fifth, you know, biggest tournament on the calendar. And, you know, in addition to Indian Wells, but for me, I feel like in order to establish yourself and, and even be on the road to becoming you know, going towards the status of the big three, you need to, 
you know, be consistent. You need to be a, a constant threat at any point at any event. And you kind of have to continue to rack up the titles and the ranking points, even when maybe not everyone's paying attention or at these, these smaller tournaments that aren't the majors, you know, it doesn't all have to be done under that, the big shiny bright lights of the, of the slam. So I think for Medvedev, this was that opportunity um, and a good one at a, at a, you know, an even bigger tournament. And, uh, you know, unfortunately he, he didn't do that. So I think that's where we see, you know, still again, these players falling short of um, our expectations that I, I think are set by, you know, being in this uh, remarkable era with the big three and, and players like Serena. Um, you know, if, if, uh, if our young Yannick Sinner wins this event, if, if Ash Barty uh, c- comes back and essentially defends her title and, and you know, solidifies her number one ranking and dress you, I mean, there are a lot of good storylines still here. Um, it just, it's, uh, it's, it's strange to see an event that usually is, is it's festive and it's, it's fun and it's hot and it looks like there's a lot of energy there. And I, I thought that, um, Steve Ross and WME and IMG, I thought they actually made the initial transition to this, this hard rock arena to moving it from Key Biscayne. I thought they pulled that off really well. Um, a little strange to see what, what looks like, you know, sort of t- tennis County fair. It looks like sort of tennis in a parking lot and you, Sometimes on Tennis Channel, you can see a couple of food trucks, but um, it's strange visually. On the other hand, and I think this goes for sports in general, when the ball's in play, it's, it's tennis and it's high-level tennis and the same way, you know, you, you pan the crown at NBA games and it seems very strange, but when you're actually watching the action, it's, it's easy to forget we're in a, we're in a pandemic. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm with you. And I, and I think, you know, you look at the crowds and the, the players, not unreasonably, have, have complained about the fairly dramatic decrease in prize money. But you sort of want to say, something's got to give here, guys. Uh, you do the math and you see, uh, you see 11 people milling around the grounds and you're seems fairly reasonable. I would think that you would have a, a prize money drop off. That is a segue to uh, an, another topic that, seems to have died down, but it certainly dominated, at least in, in my world, dominated the first few rounds, which was another flare of the tennis, especially ATP labor strife. This is a, a story that has been kind of bubbling on and off for years. We had the PTPA make this dramatic announcement on the eve of the US Open and sort of in, 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 sort of in drips and drabs, we've had more news and more tweets, and we're still not entirely sure where we are. Do you, do you sort of have general overarching thoughts, Jamie, on this uh, latest flare-up in player tournament uh, labor strife? Yeah, well, first, I, I thought you did um, an awesome job of going through a bunch of different points on this in, in your mailbag this week. And um, the one thing for me that that sticks out, and I, I will say that I agree with you that you know, the, the outburst, whatever you want to call it, um, from, from Pospisil, you know, and, and we've had him on this podcast, as you said, he's, he's a very, he's a good guy. He's one of the good guys. Right. But what he, what he did, um, you know, was, as you called it a meltdown. And unfortunately you just, you can't do that. And it, it was, um, you know, it's tough to see that kind of stuff and it makes you have that, um, uncomfortable stomach, you know, feeling, And for me, that was really unfortunate because coupled with the fact that they have not the the PTPA and and the players behind it have not fully 
established what they are exactly and, you know, what they want and what their mission statement is. And, you know, I, they have not really um, come out and officially, you know, organize that. And I think those two things together are really just not helping the cause here. Um, and, and, you know, it's a, it's a good one. And there's, there's a lot to be said and discussed here. And the fact that they have not you know, even really clarified whether or not they want to have the the female players involved. Like it's, there's just so many questions. And so that's seeing that happen this week and those conversations flare up because of that incident um, was pretty unfortunate uh, in my opinion. Um, totally agree. I think in, in Vashik Pospisil's, uh, in, in his defense, we should say right up front within, I don't know, 45 minutes of that column posting, uh, he was in touch and, and wanted to come on and uh, come on the podcast and explain some things a little bit more fully. Um, he, whatever a villain is, he is, he is the opposite, which um, I, I think is playing a role in this, but to, to his utter credit, he's, he's being accountable. And I think next week where we, we couldn't coordinate it, but we've been texting and I think he'll come on and, and try to explain a little bit more. Um, no, I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it was a bad look and I think he knows that. And I think the other problem is part of the, whole challenge here is unity and the tournaments can they can play the long game right there Miami opens going on for decades and if uh they need to wait until things calm down that they can wait this out if they have a bad year they can make it up the next year I mean these players have much more urgency and the players absolutely need unity I mean this doesn't work if half the players are in and half the players are out I mean already after you saw uh, you know, Bublik said, I've, I'm treated just fine. If Novak wants to get me some more shekels, good, you know, God bless him. I'll take some more money, but I'm not going to necessarily align myself with the PTPA. I mean, this effort needs every single player. You don't really have that issue in team sports where you have a union. You're, it's a union shop and you're either, you're either a player slash member of the bargaining unit or you're not. You don't have to go around recruiting people. There, there are no NBA players that aren't represented by the NBA's union. The problem here is that everyone has to be involved. And if you are Roger Federer, you're Rafa Nadal, you're Serena Williams, you, you have this brand, you have corporate sponsors, you have outside obligations. I think you think long and hard about aligning yourself with someone in a group that responds so emotionally to issues. And, and I, I don't want to speak for these players. I suspect uh, the, the players are very much on the same page with a lot of these issues. And I think there, there is a fair amount of solidarity, but I think it's hard to give your full-throated support to an organization that doesn't always project so professionally. And I think you, you only get a couple of unforced errors before your leverage is gone. And I, I think one thing that sort of, I, I didn't write about it, but I think one thing that's um, sort of hovering over all this is who has leverage and who has leverage in a post big three era. And right now, I think the players have a fair amount. I mean, we see what happens to tournaments when, when Roger Federer's there, when Nadal, Djokovic are there, it's a different type of tournament. I think pretty soon people are going, that leverage is going to swing and people are going to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to Indian Wells, but you're not going to have caravans of people driving to a tournament and, and deciding whether to go or not to go based on whether player X. I mean, no, no one's going to say, I, I was going to go to Indian Wells, but then Rublev pulled out. Um, right now we have that with five or six players. And I think when that goes away, the leverage swings back to the tournaments, to the, to the management side. And I think that's something that uh, sort of everybody knows. And I think the players want to use their leverage while they still have it. And I think the tournaments are happy to weigh this out and say, right now we may have these stars 
And we may have to worry about what Roger and Rafa and Novak say, but you know, when it's, I mean, I, I hate to pick on these guys because it's, it's, it's unfair to them, but you know, the, the leverage is a lot different when it's Rublev, Medvedev, and uh, you know, p- pick a name here. Uh, you know, when it's, uh, you know, Bublik, Medvedev, and Rublev, when those are three of the top five players, that's a lot different than when it's the big three. So point, point being, I think um, we're nearing a point where the tournaments are going to have some more leverage here. And I think that's informing some of this as well. But um, anyway, I, mean, I know there, there are fans I could talk about this all day and I hear from them. There are fans that want nothing to do with this. And every minute wasted talking about ATP board seats, every minute spent doing that is not talking about the, uh, you know, who, who's playing well and who's serving well and the rise of Jesse Pagula. So, you know, let's, we try to balance it here. Um, one more topic, Jamie, and then we'll, uh, then we'll call it a podcast. Um, did you happen to see Ben Rothenberg's uh, tweets and reporting about players and their, uh, I, I would say, forgive the pun, but their resistance to vaccination. Did you happen to see that? Uh, yeah, we, we, Talks a little bit about this. I mean, I I, I don't know specifically um, who he was referencing. I would need to check on it, but I understand the premise. Um, I mean, I, th- I think it's an interesting, it's sort of tennis's globalization. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's another manifestation of tennis's globalized nature. And I think in the United States, most people, um, you know, feel pretty good about getting vaccinated and recognize that it's it's a public good. It's partially about you. It's partially about other people. There are anti-vaxxers. There are holdouts. It's not necessarily who you, you think it is. Um, there have been some interesting stories about what cohorts and what subsets are, are not getting vaccinated. It's not necessarily who you might think. But, um, you know, d- different countries have different histories with vaccination and different values. And I think it's, it's an interesting question to me about how much should these players be condemned? Um, he talked to Azarenka. It was Diego Schwartzman who sort of walked back his initial response. Uh, Rublev. There were a number of players he spoke to who um, did not express a willingness to get vaccinated. I don't know if you. I mean, it was we didn't make much of it, but when Casper Ruud was on the last podcast, he suggested similarly that uh, there there did seem to be some resistance to among the players to getting vaccinated. I think it's an interesting sort of theoretical question. How, how much of this is these players ought to be condemned and don't, don't you, don't you watch the news? Don't you realize this public good? And at the same time, do we, do we respect these cultural differences? And if you come from a different parts of the world with different histories of inoculations and immunizations, I can see why you might be reluctant. Um, do you think tennis should make players get vaccinated? No, I, I don't think, I don't think they can to your point because of, this being a global sport. And I was actually going to, to bring up our, our last podcast guest, Casper Rude, because he did, you know, he, he did sort of allude to that, that that was an, a thing among the players. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that it's hard for us as Americans to understand is the uh, thinking and way of life of people in, in other countries who did not grow up here and who do not, who were not born here. And, um, we, we just have a, um, you know, a different perspective on things. And I think sometimes we forget that, especially when covering sports like the NBA or the NFL, which of course are, you know, American sports based here. And so, um, I think, you know, it, of course it would be 
best if all players were vaccinated, but I think it's really hard to just come down and say that given that it's such a global sport and given that there's, um, you know, just so many players, uh, you know, we talk about the comparison to tennis, you know, to, to team sports and there's, you know, these, these players are independent contractors and things. And, um, it's just, it's a much different, uh, sport when you have players, you know, at the top, and then you have someone ranked a thousand something, you know, it's just, there's so many, um, players in the pool. And I, I think it makes it difficult because of that and, and the global nature. I think uh, not not to conflate topics. I think you're absolutely right, and I think it also is it's a little bit of insight on why it can be so hard for these players to organize. That uh, mm -hmm. what what being in a union means in the United States must you know can, can be something very different from what organized labor means somewhere else. But uh, no, I mean I th I think to this um, to this vaccination point, I, I saw S Simon Briggs wrote a column that uh, is worth checking out. That his read is this is uh, of a piece with the. Sort of selfishness of tennis players and, and the necessary self-centeredness it takes to be uh, a success in this sport and you worry about yourself and um you, you almost have to as an occupational requirement and this is one of the the less appealing offshoots of that i think some of this is is cultural i think some of this honestly may have just been in, in the way uh the discussion has been phrased i mean i, I think it's going to be interesting though when at some point some countries are going to say you need proof of vaccination to enter. And I think that's going to, uh, that, that's going to make tennis players make a decision because I don't think uh, there's much of a legal challenge you can make there. Right. Uh, and there's, and there's not really a precedent with that. Right. Cause I mean, tennis is, has always been a global sport with players traveling from, you know, country A to B to C to Z. And there's, there's never been something similar that has been, a law or like requirement for entering the country to play in a tournament, right? Is there anything that you can think of that would be? No, I mean, you know, you need, uh, it's like saying, I'm, I'm anti, I'm anti passport. Yeah, I was going to say passports. Uh, but... uh, no, I mean, I, I think you know sometimes we've seen this in other sports with uh, with criminal offenses where players haven't been able to, uh, you know. Okay. Yeah, that one's not been able to compete. Um, and there have been some, even in the NBA, I mean, some players have had a hard time entering. You know, Kobe Bryant, I don't think, was able to uh play a game in Canada. Don't check me on this, but I think there, you know, while there was a pending felony charge, he wasn't able to leave the country and play a game in Canada. But, um, no, I think your, I think your, your larger point is, is a good one, which is this there's no precedent for this. I do think when countries, Australia, New Zealand seem to be obvious candidates, when they say, if you want to come, you've got to have proof of vaccination, um, I suspect tennis players will be rolling up their sleeves. But um, the other the other big question is that, you know, we have we're, we're in the springtime. I mean, the French Open is around the corner and and now the country has just gone back into lockdown. So um, that coupled with this this conversation about vaccines is is pretty interesting. It's it's funny, too. And we can I mean, we can close out here. Um, you know, t tennis channel and in, in full disclosure is the host broadcaster of the tennis channel, at least, uh, for the, I mean, for the, for the French open, at least for the U S market. And gosh, I've heard nothing about, uh, I'm looking this up now and I actually see the first Google hit is dare not imagine that French tennis chief worried about the cancellation of 2021. Um, I've, I've heard nothing about any sort of cancellation. And as far as I was last, I heard, uh, 
there was not going to be a bubble type atmosphere. So I, I think you're right. Um, Europe has not been, generally speaking, as savvy to unroll the the vaccine uh, rollout has not been uh, smooth in, in Western Europe as it has been here in the U.S. But I, I've heard nothing to suggest the French Open won't happen. And, you know, I mean, you, you'd like to think if it happened in October, it ought to happen in May and June. But um, you're, you're right to note that these these rates in Europe are worrisome. And all of a sudden we're, you know, we're, we're eight weeks away. So add it to the long list of tennis, uh, extra tennis storylines and challenges. Yes, for sure. <laughs> um, all right, you have to go. I have to go. Um, this was a pleasure reconnecting. We hadn't talked in a few weeks, um, so nice to uh, nice to catch up, Jamie. Definitely enjoy the last few days of this Miami Open, whether you whether you like it or not. <laughs> the tournament is happening. I like it on balance, and I see Sitsipas uh, wins the first set back on serve. So we have a uh, you know we we have a top five player who will be making it into the semifinals. It looks like, no, I, I think, you know what? It's a, it's a good lesson for tennis, which is uh, it's, it's stepping on a balloon. One side goes down and the other side goes up and top players uh, don't play or lose early. And that means we'll have some new emergences and whether it's Corda or Sinner or Andrescu's back, there'll be others. There's always something to write about. Um, for every winner, there is a loser. That doesn't change uh, when there's a big three and Serena or not. So um, next week, we will, uh, as promised, uh, try and connect with Vasek Pospisil, who would like to uh, get a few more points across to the public. And uh, we have a tennis mother who uh, we will be talking to in the next few weeks. What's it like to watch her daughter play tennis? And more guests to come. Keep your suggestions coming. Jamie, as always, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I can now thank you in person. Thanks everyone for listening. Leave a review, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to subscribe and we will uh, have another one next week. Thanks everyone. Mm-hmm.